Okay, so anyways, we are in a series. We're asking why, God, uh, why, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? I'm a good person. Why do bad things happen to me? We, we looked at the reason why uh, in our first week of the series. We also looked at, you know, why, God, why, why should I trust you? We, we looked at God's character and we looked at his faithfulness. Uh, we looked at um, why, God, why do our prayers sometimes seem to go unanswered? Why, when I have been praying about this, why aren't you answering? And we looked at that as well. And this week, we are looking at our new question. And this week's new question is, why do I keep? And why do I keep on? It can also be asked, why can't I stop? Why can't I stop something that I so desperately want to be stopping? Depends on how you look at the situation. We each have bad habits that we would like to break when we're honest with ourselves. We each have bad habits. At one point or another, you've probably asked God to help you quit something. We've all asked God to help, whether it's changing a habit or something other. But we continue to do it till this day, even though we've asked God, God, I, I desperately I, I want to stop this. Now, I want to venture out on a limb here and say probably every believer at one point or another in their walk has lamented on their inability to stop something that they truly want to stop. We've all wanted to stop, and we, we wish we could, but we don't quite know how. Have you ever, ever been there? Anybody ever been there? Sometimes it's a bad habit, like biting your nails or eating too much junk food. Other times it can be sin, from lust to, to hatred. But we each struggle in one area or another. Whichever where we grow, wherever we are, we want to grow, and we want to change, and we want to be better people. We want to become different, but the change at times seems all but impossible. Now, having a degree that required me to take several psychology courses and working in the mental health field for a time, I can tell you that there are several different uh, reasons uh, that are different factors, okay? One of those things are the outside factors, okay? So these aren't the main point of the sermon, but I'm going to put these out there because they are legitimate things. Um, these may limit your ability to change. They're worth mentioning as they can be contributing factors. But like I said, they're not the main point of today's uh, message. Now, all these factors can come when we keep the wrong things around us, when we keep the wrong things around us, when we're trying to change. When we have the wrong stuff around us, it makes it impossible because those things tempt us not to make the change that we want. So New Year's just happened a couple of weeks ago. New Year's just happened, right? So typically during the beginning of a new year, many of us, We'll make a New Year's resolution. Anybody here make a New Year's resolution? Anybody willing to admit? Nobody here? Wow, look at that. Okay, well, I'm glad you guys are awesome. Uh, but anyways, um, okay, so when you are making a New Year's resolution, and maybe you have already learned, maybe this is the reason why you didn't make one, is that a couple of weeks in, typically, what happens to that New Year's resolution? Exactly, I saw that. The signal is this. Okay, so that, that's what happens to a New Year's resolution most of the time, a couple of weeks in. We, we try to make a resolution to become healthier. Now, um, but like my problem is I know where the junk food is. So when I try to make a resolution to become healthier, I, I know where to cheat. And so I have it really close. Uh, maybe another example is when I was in the Marine Corps, I was a smoker. I had developed a chewing tobacco habit late in high school, and when I moved into the Marine Corps, I developed a smoking habit. And I had tried to quit several different times. I didn't really love the smoking habit, but I, I found it hard to quit. 
And I was only actually able to make that change to quit smoking when I actually moved units. My unit that I was with was resent back to Iraq. I didn't have enough time left in service, so they sent me somewhere else. And I entered the new unit that they placed me with, the military police that I was with my last year, um, as a non-smoker, right from the beginning. So I no longer had those friends around me to tempt me to go back. So I had that change. And so it finally stuck. So now there are also outside and internal factors as well. Those uh, factors can limit our ability to change. When we're not emotionally ready to change, you want to make the change, but emotionally you're just not there yet. You can end up doing yourself more harm than you do good. Now, ultimately, our, our efforts get wasted, and we end up being sometimes worse off than when we started, when we're not emotionally ready to make a change. There are also some legitimate physical limitations. We have to admit that sometimes physically there are things that will stop us. But ultimately, and what is most likely the case that limits us in our ability to change is actually a spiritual limitation. Most of the time, what limits us the most is a spiritual limitation. So how can a spiritual limitation be holding us back from seeing the change that we're desperately longing and searching for? Well, when we're trying to force a change into our lives, more often than not, we are trying to meet a spiritual need. More often than not, we're trying to meet a spiritual need. Now, when we're trying to meet that need, We try to meet it often without God. We attempt in our own efforts to do what only God himself can do. So let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, God tells Moses to present the people of the nation with the Ten Commandments. Now, after this presentation, the nation agrees to abide by the Ten Commandments. But unfortunately, very quickly, they they figured out that they can't keep the Ten Commandments. So they break them constantly. If we're going to constantly break these commands, why would they agree to God's standards in the first place? Why would they agree to God's standards in the first place? Well, like most of us, when we agree to something that's much harder than we realize at first, um, we are optimistic. So they were optimistic. They overestimated their ability. And so they, they thought that they had more power within themselves than they did. And so here's where the rubber meets the road. When we think we can do God's will and keep his standards all on our own, we have created what is called religion. When we're trying to do stuff all on our own without God, we have created religion. When we focus on what we think we can do instead of relying on what God can do, our focus is on the wrong spot. And this, it's a cautionary tale of the entire Old Testament. Today we're going to be looking at three main areas that are necessary in our lives if true change is going to be happening, if true change is going to happen. Now, the first is going to be behavior and the heart. The second is when I am weak, I am strong. And the final is you are only as strong as you are honest. You are only as strong as you are honest. And we'll get to that point eventually. So let's start with the first one, behavior and the heart. I want to put this one out from the beginning that changing the behavior without changing the heart Never works. Never works to truly change your behavior without changing the heart as well. If you change, if you attempt to change your outside behavior without changing the inside first, if you forget to change the heart, true change will never take place in your life. Now, since Israel had agreed to keep God's commandments as a nation, they slowly built up this idea that their actions were the only thing that mattered to God as he looked at man. When Jesus walked the earth during his earthly ministry, when he was 
walking around, he was confronted by the religious and this very thing. So hopefully you've already got your Bibles open to Matthew, to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 25 through 28. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. I'll be reading out of the New King James. This is Jesus speaking. Words are in red in my Bible. Here's what he's saying. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you are also outwardly appearing righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus has some pretty harsh words for the religious leaders of his day. He told them that they only like to clean the outside of the appearance. These are the people that today, if they lived in our day and age, they would be wearing designer clothes. They like to look really great, like they had it all together on the outside. They liked to look like everything was perfect. And that was the only thing to them that counted, was the outside appearance. So think about this idea with the cup for a minute with me. Anybody here only wash the outside of the cup? Anybody at all? We have these... um, beautiful pottery uh, chili bowls. They've got a a handle on them. They're handmade. uh, They're absolutely beautiful. And we use them all the time for chili because they're just wonderful things. And I couldn't imagine after having chili, washing only the outside of that cup and then putting it away. Could you imagine going to your cupboard a couple weeks later and opening it up and trying to use it? I mean, if the mice hadn't licked it clean already for you, and you could get past the mold, it would be a great cup for orange juice, right? Yeah, I can see that look. No, absolutely not. What Jesus is telling the religious leaders is nothing new. At one point in the nation's history, effectively, they had rejected God as their leader. They had sought a king. Uh, God even actually tells this to them directly as they were seeking a king because they wanted to fit in with the nations that were surrounding them. You know, the nations that, you know, sacrificed their people to the false gods. That didn't actually exist. Um, but God uh, agreed because the people were unbudging and they wanted a king. So he says, okay, I'll give you a king. The first king, his name is Saul. He looks like a great political leader. He stands a head and shoulders above everybody else. He seems humble, but unfortunately his heart wasn't in the right place. And it becomes very obvious very quickly that his heart's in the wrong place. And so he completely disobeys God. He, he just completely disobeys God in a couple of different areas. And so God sends his prophet Samuel to go and anoint another king. Uh, Saul is still reigning, but God's like, look, I have rejected this guy. He's not going to do a single thing that I want, so go to another place. And so Samuel faithfully obeys, and he goes to a guy's house, a guy's by the name of Jesse. Jesse's got a whole bunch of kids. He goes up to Jesse's oldest son. He's like, this has got to be the guy. This guy looks awesome. And God tells him the following. God says to him, but the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance, talking about the oldest son, at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks at the outward appearance, uh, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at our heart. He looks less on the stuff out here, and he looks more at our heart, the part that's on the inside of us. 
When we try to win God's approval by following the rules, we have created a religion. And religion has been and always be our attempt to please God without him. Religion is our attempt to please God without him. If we, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, only clean the outside and we only try to change our behavior and don't allow our heart to change as well, the change will never be permanent. Change will never be permanent. There will always be a disconnect. I want to change my actions, and I'm willing to allow my heart to change, but then how do I do it? If I want to change my actions, and I'm willing to allow my heart to change, how do I go about it? Point two today is when I am weak, I am strong. When I am weak, I am strong. Now, there is a contradictory nature to the Christian walk. When we think we are strong, we're actually at our weakest, funny enough. As when we believe we are strong, we attempt to please God all on our own. And we try to do everything in our own power, without God's help. And unfortunately, we couldn't be further from where we desire to be because we are relying on ourselves and not him. Rather, the Bible shows us that it's our weakness is where our strength is found. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is asking God to change something in his life. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's asking, he desperately wants to overcome something that God has allowed him to stay in his life. Because he feels like, and maybe you've been there, Paul feels like if this thing was removed, he could be who God had created him to be. If only this one thing was removed, he could be a better Christian. If only this one thing was removed, he could be more loving towards those around him. If only this one thing was removed, he could finally reach who God had created him to be. This is what Paul thought, but ultimately God had a different idea on Paul's life. And Paul prayed several times after repeatedly praying. Do you know what God's answer was? God's answer is this. He says to me, speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities than the power of Christ may rest upon me. God said to Paul that by removing this one thing wouldn't help him. In fact, actually, it seems like this one thing would keep Paul in check and help remind him daily, remind Paul daily how much he actually needed the Lord and keep him humble. Well, that's a little bit backward from today's popular theology, isn't it? God wants me to live my best life now, right? He wants me to be healed, right? God wants me to live by faith now. He wants us to live by faith now. He wants you to be healed, absolutely, but that physical healing may not come in this life. Perhaps the most interesting point in God's response here is that he says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. If God's grace is supposed to be enough, then we have to ask the question, what exactly is God's grace? In technical terms, it's unmerited favor. Technical terms, it's unmerited favor, meaning that it's something that God gives to each and every single one of us, even though we don't deserve it. We haven't done anything that could actually earn it. So he's not rewarding it with us by our actions. He's giving it to us because he feels like it. Paul would later write to one of his epistles exactly what grace is and what it means for each one of us. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's God's grace that brings us salvation. It is his choice to bless us, though we have done nothing to earn his favor. What it does is it teaches us. But what does it teach us? Well, if we read the verse, it says that it teaches us to deny ungodliness and the worldly lusts. It teaches us that we should live soberly, that we should live righteously and godly in this present age. 
It is the grace of God that teaches us what we should accept into our lives and what we should reject, what we shouldn't allow into our lives. But this grace is not our source of strength. Rather, it's his spirit working within us. We find verses like this and others, we have no true strength on our own. We have no true strength without God being present and working in our life. His spirit works within us and through us, and we have to rely on him, rely on the spirit wholly as it works through us. So what does God's word say of our very salvation? It says, for by grace, talking about grace again, that you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is his grace that works through us, that changes us, which means that we have to allow it to change us. But how does it change us? How do we allow his grace to work through each and every single one of us? Well, you are only as strong as you are honest. You are only as strong as you are honest. The Achilles heel of religion is that all of the effort, all of the bravado, all of that proving that you were better than everyone else, or at least not as bad as someone else, because sometimes I'm just trying to prove that I'm not as bad as the guy next door, is a facade, and it's a religion. In all reality, it's a house of cards that comes tumbling down and easily blown over. No matter how good it looks, it's just a careful balancing act when we try to please God without him. And God sees right through it. Now, I'm sure there's a term here that you've probably heard before, and it says, fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. In many areas, when we lack what we need, we pretend till we get it right. I I have used the fake it till you make it method more than once in my life. And in many areas, it works. Actually, it really helps. Sometimes you just got to have a little gusto, a little bravado, and just keep on treading like you know what you're doing, and eventually things catch up, right? That, That happens, that it works at times. There are places that you can fake it till you make it. However, bringing this attitude of fake it till you make it into your spiritual life, into your spiritual life will actually slowly corrupt it. Bringing fake it till you make it into your spiritual life will slowly corrupt your spiritual life. It's this mindset in your spiritual life, it's better called religion in all reality, because it becomes an attempt to do what cannot be done on your own. And the only outcome is you slowly lead yourself into living a complete lie. Oh, yeah, I'm doing just fine. Yeah, I'm doing great. Anybody ever asked you how you're doing and you lied? You'd give them the Christian answer. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. You're doing the fake until you make it. And unfortunately, what happens is you slowly build these walls up. Instead of being honest, we fake it. Of course, I can fake it until I'm, you know, an actual Christian, until I'm actually where I'm supposed to look and be, right? But it corrupts you slowly, and it slowly lives a lie through you. We have to learn to be honest with where we are at. Now, there is an old school book called Pilgrim's Progress. You may or may not have heard of it before. You may have recently heard it. The main character, his name is Christian. It's an analogy of the Christian life as he is walking through. He walks into a very dusty room that has never been swept in the book. At first, a man with a broom tries to come through and sweep the room, and all he does is create dust clouds, and it absolutely, it doesn't work. It's choking clouds. The more he sweeps, the more dust is stirred up, and the book becomes a picture of the law and of religion. Uh, Bunyan, the author, says that as the person is watching this, another one comes in, a lady comes in, and she pours water on the floor. In short order, the floor is cleaned up. And what he says is that this is the grace of God. Whereas our efforts to try to sweep everything up only creates a choking dust cloud, 
God's grace washes over us and completely cleans. And that is what we need to be able to rely on. So we're asking the question, why do we keep? Why do we keep? And the way we try to unsuccessfully stop or change is to instinctively add more rules. The way I have, and I'm pretty sure when you start thinking about it, to unsuccessfully stop or change something in your life is to instinctively add more rules. We try to give ourselves more limitations. We try to be better at obeying. Think about it for a moment. The Israelite nation couldn't keep 10 commandments, right? We all agree with that. We've seen the book. So what did they do? They came up with 600 more rules to help them obey the first 10, which they couldn't do in the first place. If adding more and doing more leads us nowhere, then what can we finally do to actually see change that we're desperately longing for in our lives? Leadership speaker and uh, lead pastor Craig Groeschel is quoted with saying this. He says, you cannot correct what you won't confront. You cannot correct what you won't confront. Step one is going to be admit your shortcomings. Say it out loud if you need to. Be brutally honest with yourself exactly with where you are at. Until you are willing to get to the point where you can be brutally honest with yourself, you'll never be able to change. What was our first point again? Changing the behavior without changing the heart never works. You have to change the heart before you can actually effectively change the behavior. Your past failures in trying to change are a testament to this fact. If you've ever tried to change something and unsuccessfully did so, you can remember back and what happened and the underlying reasons. How many times have you attempted to change only to revert back within a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two at best? You always go back to that same old habit. However, when we're open, when we're honest, we finally drop our guard and drop the act, finally become transparent, we're finally willing to step into the place and accept the change that can actually happen. Now, if the first step is to admit our shortcomings, then step two would be to accept the fact you can't change on your own. You can't change on your own. This is especially true where sin is involved. When sin is involved in our lives, we have to rely on God. The only way to break the sin cycle is to accept the fact that you can't stop on your own. Now, this may seem a little bit contradictory at first, but if we never stop trying to save ourselves, if we never stop trying to save ourselves, we will never rest in the knowledge of what God has already done for us. If we never stop our efforts in trying to do something, we'll never learn how to rest in knowing what God has already done for us. Last week, we said part of trusting God is knowing his character. Do you know that God has great plans for your life? Paul said that we can be confident in our God and his good plans. Paul said this. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That comes from Philippians. Instead of dwelling on our abilities or a lack thereof, as when we are honest, we dwell on our strength, perhaps maybe more than we would like to admit. But God has plans for you. He has a good will, and he has promised that he will complete it one day through you. He has plans for your life. Uh, later in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in both you to will and to do his good pleasure. God is working for you, and he's working behind the scenes for you. Only when we truly grasp his love and the power is we're finally grasping the grace that works through our lives. When we need to resort to religious actions to look good, we can never succeed. 
Remember, asking for help is never a sign of weakness. Asking for help is never a sign of weakness. It's a sign of wisdom. Often we're pressured to fake it until we make it, but accepting that we are weak makes us stronger because we learn to rely on Christ instead of ourselves. Even on the days when it feels like you're losing the battle, remember Paul's words before we close. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. When you feel like you're losing the battle, grace abounds so much more. It continues to counteract and counter. God's grace is, over, is able to overcome anything that may rise up in your life. God's grace can overcome anything in your life. The hardest part is letting go, giving him control. So my closing questions for you today are twofold. Number one, what is it today that you finally need to let go of? What is it today that you finally need to let go of? What is it that you have been struggling to hold on to, to keep control of, that is wearing you out? that finally needs to be given over to him? What is it in your life? My second question, my final question is this. What area of your life needs some brutal honesty? What area of your life right now needs some brutal honesty? It's often incredibly hard to admit fault within ourselves. I know, because I'm perfect. It's hard to admit fault within ourselves, much less to allow God to take the reins. Incredibly hard at times. What has God been pressing on your heart that finally needs to come to the surface? What is God working on that finally needs to be let go? Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you uh, for this message. Lord, I just thank you. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith, where the word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known, by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.